Welcome back to Share the Love Stories with me, the Reverend Amelia Arthur. Today, my guest is Katie Langston. She's the Director of Digital Strategy for the Innovation Team at Luther Seminary in St. Paul, Minnesota. She's also the intern pastor at Christ the Servant uh, Lutheran Church in Badness Heights, Minnesota. She's a wife and mom of two human children and one dog child. Her dog child is Buffy, named of course, after the vampire slayer. Katie, I'm so glad to welcome you to the podcast. Thanks for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Amelia. I'm so excited. Me too, me too. So Katie and I have been trying to find a time to do this recording for about three months. So I'm glad <laughs> I'm glad that we're here. Um, so Katie, you have a book coming out. Will you just talk a little bit about it and um, and we'll go from there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my book is called Sealed, An Unexpected Journey into the Heart of Grace. Uh, and the kind of five second version is that it it tells a story of how um, a devout Mormon girl growing up in Utah became a Lutheran minister. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but then the um, but then sort of the deeper uh, exploration of the book uh, is really a meditation on belonging. Mm. It's a meditation on family and faith, uh, and it explores, you know the sort of major transitions that people can experience in their lives and what does it mean to change and who are we when we change and why might we change and how do people around us respond and how do we respond to them? Um, so it's, it's a, it's a journey of um, transformation um, as much as it is sort of like a, a kind of unusual life trajectory story. Right. Yeah. Well, I'm so looking forward to reading it. Can you tell us when it's coming out and how one might order it or pre-order it? Yeah, absolutely. So it's coming out on April 6th, uh, 2021. Um, and it's available for pre-order now on all the major kind of platforms. You can get it on Amazon, on Barnes and Noble. You can get it on um, IndieBound or Bookshop.org if you want to support awesome. independent booksellers, which I which I recommend that you do. Uh, and you can go to my website, which is katielangston.com, uh, if you're interested to to um, read more about it. Although we will be talking, I think a bit a bit Absolutely. probably in more depth than the, the one page <laughs> I have up. But anyway, Absolutely. And I'll make sure that in the um, description of this episode that all of that info is in there for anyone who's listening and then wants to order it. You can just look at the description. Nice. Um, again, so excited to read it. So happy for you and um, just proud of you having known you um, for the last several years. Um, can't wait to read it. So tell, tell me or tell us um, how how would how does love um come out in this book you know where are the where are the places where maybe love intersects with that journey of transformation that journey toward belonging and acceptance um maybe both for yourself and maybe as other folks accepted accepted that journey oh, yeah that's a beautiful question um you know i think um at its heart, the the book is um, is really an exploration of the grace and love of God uh, as the as the 
agent, as the one mm-hmm. who reaches out, as the one who does the transforming and, you know, moves um, in a, in a life. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of share uh, part of my journey that, that, that I share in the book is that uh, I grew up um, extremely anxious like really mm-hmm. anxious, sort of existentially <laughs> anxious. Um, it, so much so that uh, later in life, I didn't know it when I was a child, but later in life, I was diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder. And my obsessions often took, uh, had a religious undertone, which is pretty common yeah. for religious people. Um, so they, mm-hmm. there's even sort of a, a term for it called scrupulosity, uh, religious scrupulosity, which is, which is how OCD manifests when the content of the obsessions and compulsions tend to be religious. Oh yeah. Interesting. Um, so, you know, um, I grew up feeling, um, extremely unworthy and unlovable. Um, mm. my God. Um, and, and some of that had to do with the way that that Mormonism in particular um, emphasizes what they call worthiness. It's a kind of standard of acceptability uh, in Mormon practice. From the time you're 12 years old, they bring you into a room with a lay leader and ask you all kinds of questions on if you are complying with the standards. Sometimes those interviews, you know, take on a pretty I would argue abusive kind of sexual nature. They'll like ask you even children, like kind of graphic sexual questions. Right. Um, I want to get back to that. Absolutely. Because I know that you've written articles about just about those interviews and you've been um, a very vocal voice in opposing, opposing that practice and advocating for change, even though you are no longer part of Mormonism. Before we get there though, what I do want to ask is, will you just give us, maybe the two minute snapshot of your kind of childhood life, just contextualize this for us, uh, for the listeners, just so they know, like they can picture you like kind of in your story. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I grew up, um, in, um, when I was younger, uh, I grew up in a town called Magna, which is sort of on the West side of the Salt Lake Valley, um, sort of a lower middle class, um, home, um, and loving parents, you know, uh, but, but, but very, and <laughs> not, it's not a, but, and, right. um, extremely conservative Mormons and extremely conservative politically, almost to the point that I would say, you know, kind of quasi fundamentalist. I don't use that term in the sense of like, they were polygamists, which is what sometimes people think of when they think of fundamentalist Mormon, although they did have friends who, who went that direction. So that sort of extremity, but, um, but just fundamentalist in the way that they thought about faith and sort of the broader sense of that term. Um, and, um, and so grew up in, in a, in a highly kind of controlled religious environment. Um, my parents pulled me out of public school when I was in third grade because they were worried about the you know, sort of secular forces I would be (laughs) exposed to, um, and, and homeschooled me, um, did a lot of religious instruction as part of our, you know, as part of the homeschooling. Um, and, and so I, I just grew up, um, with this sense, this feeling of like God's overpowering presence, but it was always sort of an oppressive Mm, mm-hmm. feeling of God that, 
you know, that at any minute you would do something that would really tick this god off. Right. I was going to say that would really, right, miss the creator. Yes. (laughs) Um, At which point your own belonging was called into question. Um, Mm. And so I just, I felt that keenly. I was a pretty sensitive kid and I just felt that deeply. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, thank you. Again, I think just to contextualize then, then as we talk, let's go back to those um, kind of worthiness interviews. Um, Did you have to participate in one yourself? Yeah, yeah, many. Okay. Yep. Yeah. Can you tell us, yeah, just about that practice and um, yeah, what was that like for you? Yeah. So, um, so yeah, from the time you're 12, years old, um, if you're a, you know, if you're a practicing kind of Mormon, um, the lay pastor, they call it a bishop, but they're lay in the sense there's no theological training whatsoever that takes place. You're just sort of Mm -hmm. selected from the congregation and you serve in that capacity for five years on a bivocational basis. You're like, you know, you don't get paid. You, you know, so, so, and they're all men. Like kind of like deacons or elders, like in some of the like Presbyterian Methodists. Yeah, totally. A lot like that. Yeah. Okay. Um, they're they're all they're all men, and but they're you know they have the they their vocation is like you know one of my bishops was a grocer, and the other was a the the small a small business owner, and another was a realtor. Right. So there are these. Right. And the, and those are wonderful vocations and professions, except that maybe you don't have a ton of experience right. doing spiritual care. So, you know, they pull you in and then they have a list of questions that they're supposed to ask you on a regular basis about, do you believe all the things that the Mormon church teaches? You know, do you, would do you drink coffee, which is not allowed, you know, or alcohol and, right then, you know, if you have any sort of, um, honestly, like sexual experiences of any kind. Right. (laughs) And like a lot of times they will, at least when I was growing up, you know, they would get pretty explicit and I don't want to be explicit on your podcast, but they would ask some pretty explicit questions, even of, you know, even of children, like as a child, 12, right, 18, like, 14 years old, I'm asked all kinds of questions. Right, like, certainly not age appropriate, sort of in terms of the kind of common experience that we would think of for children that age. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so um, fast forward, um, I guess a couple of years at least, but, um, and I don't want to ask you to give away everything in your book, um, but, you know, so you went through this series of worthiness interviews. You were obviously growing up, becoming a, you know, preteen, then teenager, you know, in this really kind of like immersive, right? Like mm-hmm. fundamentalist context. When did you start wondering about um, whether that was the right place for you? So that kind of gets to the, almost the first question you asked about like, where does love show up and where does God show Mm -hmm. up in the story? Um, I never had the capacity to question if or 
where I belonged. It was not a thought you could think. Um, But what happened when I was um, newly married um, and I was pregnant, actually, with my first daughter, Mm -hmm. um, I was I had reached probably the lowest point of my life. Um, I was, um, I had untreated, undiagnosed OCD and it was going crazy. Like mm-hmm. it, it was, it was wildly, <laughs> right. It was running wild. Um, and I reached a point that I, you know, that I, that I did not feel as if I wanted to be alive. Um, and during this period of time, um, I began to hear, and I'm sure I'd heard it before, but it hadn't penetrated in any way. I began to hear people talk about grace mm-hmm. and about the grace of God. And see, Mormons don't, at least when I was growing up, I, they're telling me that's changing, and I and I pray that that's true. But when I was growing up, you didn't believe in grace. You you know. You had grace um, uh, only after you'd done everything you could yourself, and then God's grace would kind of kick in after that. And I, you know, as a scrupulous person, I was always like, oh, I've never done, I haven't done all that I can. I could do more. So I was never worthy of grace. But I started to hear about it, and I um, sort of randomly attended a lecture um, on the campus of Utah State University, which is in Logan, Utah, where I went to school. and grew up for like my teenage years. And um, there was a C.S. Lewis scholar there talking and he talked about grace and he talked Mm -hmm. about God's love. And he said, I'm a Christian because I know enough of my deficiencies to be devastated. Mm -hmm. I don't think I could live without the love of God in Jesus Christ. And there was something about that, hearing that, Mm -hmm. that, that struck me and it changed me for some reason. And, you know, the grace of God, the grace of God is the reason why that, that mm-hmm. I believed that I believed mm-hmm. him. And it was that, that actually started my sort of quote unquote crisis of faith within right. Mormonism, because I was like, wait a minute, I've been doing all this stuff for all these years. And then this experience comes in and says, hey, you're loved, you're okay, you're forgiven. Mm. You didn't have to do anything to earn that. It's just a gift. Mm-hmm. And that was the opposite of what I had been raised to believe. And so that experience began a much longer, almost 10-year journey <laughs> to figure out what to do with that. Right new reality. So I stayed in Mormonism for a long time after that, um, wrestling with the implications of this healing experience of love and, and wholeness that came when I least expected it, certainly least deserved it and sort of rocked my world. Right. That's beautiful. And, you know, it sounds like sounds like that was one of those kind of like epiphanal moments where you walk through a door that you can't go back through, you know, that 
that turning point for you in your journey was one after which you couldn't go back to just that, like checking off the boxes until you felt like you had done enough. 100%. Oh, that's, that's amazing. So at that same time, you said you, um, your OCD still hadn't been, you know, diagnosed or wasn't being treated. Um, just what was, what was that journey like, or I guess maybe, uh, how did those things maybe overlap? Like, was this sort of like epiphany for you or just this hearing this idea of God's grace and love as being for you? Um, how did that intersect the, then maybe with kind of that journey towards like mental health treatment? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I certainly don't want to say like, you know, I think there's <laughs> sort of a misperception sometimes that if we have mental health issues if we just believe more <laughs> then that's going to go away right like right so the um the experience of grace gave me a new framework from which i could operate in order to do some of that difficult work so i ended up mm-hmm. you know going to therapy um soon after or around that time i don't know you know which came first but it was all around that same time um uh, you know, started eventually, you know, taking anti-anxiety medication, which has been very, very helpful. Um, and even through the whole process, continuing to, to circle back, um, with, you know, therapists and and providers over the years, just to kind of, even after it had become well-managed, um, to sort of, you know, just, just stay, um, you know, stay mindful, uh, and present. Those are a lot of the things that, that are important to do as like kind of mental health practices. So, um, yeah, the whole, I think taking care of our bodies, our minds, our spirits, you know, the whole, the wholeness of who we are, right. Is something that we have to take care of long-term, right. That it's not a one and done exactly kind of thing. Yep. So talk about your relationships with, um, people like husband, family, good friends, just, you said, you know, during that kind of 10 years after that C.S. Lewis kind of moment um, and your journey kind of out of, out of Mormonism, what, what were your relationships with those closest to you like during that time? Yeah. So um, one thing I did well, I will pat myself on the back for this. I will give myself credit for this. Is is I is is it did take me a long time, and and I went really slow. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times, what happens with Mormon folks when they sort of have a crisis of faith, and I think this maybe happens with a lot of people from a fundamentalist backgrounds, is that once they kind of see it's not what they thought it was, they're like, "Well, I'm out of here," and they blow up their lives, and that's not necessarily their fault the systems that they're in kind of are so black and white so all or nothing that you can't be surprised when the people then choose nothing <laughs> when they find out that it's not all right and they're not equipped to deal with that but i think another manifestation of god's grace was that you know god led me slowly mm. um i love so, that. yeah god led me slowly that's beautiful yeah. yeah um so it was a long process um and it it didn't, I don't think it came as a fundamental shock to anyone by the time it sort of culminated. 
um, with me leaving. But, you know, it was hard. Uh, my husband, like to this day, remains um, remains a Mormon. And we've had to learn how to um, how to navigate sort of a mixed faith marriage, which was never something that either of us intended <laughs> when we went into this whole thing. Right. Uh, my my parents, um, you know, have have struggled to um, to not feel hurt by the the journey that I've taken. Um, my mom has been pretty supportive all along. My dad is coming around, which is mm-hmm. a really good thing to be able to say. You know, couldn't maybe say that a couple of years ago, but he's coming around too. Yeah, maybe. God is leading him slowly. God is leading him slowly as well, indeed. Um, at the same time, you know, I think converts have a tendency to sort of be like old way bad, new way good. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and one thing that I really tried to do, like in this book and throughout my journey, yeah. is not to do that. Right. Um, is to um, is to find the good and the bad mm, mm-hmm. and, and see how God works within that sort of complexity. So there are profound gifts that I can name and claim from my growing up as a Mormon a sense of community, a sense of God being real and important a priority, right. That we make God a priority in our lives. Um, a sense of like devotion and and practice um and um and that's helped too for me you know not that i didn't go through sometimes of like anger and probably wasn't <laughs> <laughs> as generous about it as i could have been you know but coming back around again and again and like um feeling like i can't just like write off what happened. I've got to cl- claim it and integrate it into my, you know, into my journey. Right. That's something that I've been very impressed with. Um, every time I've heard you talk about um, your journey from Mormonism to the ELCA, uh, when you came and talked with our confirmation class, um, I guess it was last February-ish, right? January, February, I think. It was like uh, right before the world right, ended. <laughs> right, right. I was going to say in the time before, um, you know, one of the things I wrote down that you said, and you've kind of named it, You, I mean, you've kind of named it here, but uh, when you visited us, you said, I didn't know how I could move forward if I didn't know that the promise was for me. Hmm. And, um, and that just really like struck me. And I feel like that was that, you know, what you took from that C.S. Lewis night but the other piece of that, um, I think just your like attitude and demeanor has always been one of, of wanting to help reform and change the institution you came from for the good rather than a wholesale rejection of it. And I guess the place that I think of, um, that I've heard of from you and just from reading what you've written um, has been your critique of those worthiness interviews um as one piece of that uh what what do you imagine kind of could be uh for mormonism or you know like what what is a future that you envision maybe uh 
a health, what does healthiness maybe within that, within that system maybe look like as you could envision it? I think it would take, um, it would take a fair amount of repentance, mm. you know, which that's not a dirty word. We all need to repent. <laughs> Absolutely. Ask Wednesday um, a couple weeks ago. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but it would take an acknowledgement um, of some of those practices and some of the harm that's come from them and, and um, a willingness to change them. And it would take, um, you know, that, and that would require some, some rather dramatic reimagining theologically about who God is and who Jesus is and why it matters. Mm. Um, You know, they're, they're famously, um, unorthodox in terms of their understanding of God. They believe God the Father has a physical body and lives in a physical kind of location. And, you know, we don't need to get into all that kind of metaphysical stuff necessarily on this podcast, but um, that'll be when you come back. That's right. (laughs) We'll talk about Mormon metaphysics. Uh, (laughs) Um, But but you you can imagine though, like, a Mormonism in which that healthiness could exist if the work was done. I think so. Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Um, and I know people, you know, I, I'm still pretty connected to certain communities within Mormonism that are, you know, trying to, to reform from the inside. And, and, you know, I can imagine a strain or an expression of Mormonism that isn't abusive or unhealthy. Uh, and I, I do pray for that, you know? Right. That's beautiful. I think that idea that nothing is beyond redemption. Um, I think that would just be a theme that I would say, I know I've heard you hmm. um, kind of use that sort of redemptive redemption as a possibility um, hmm. language. How does that, um, how does all of this maybe um, then work uh when you as a mom have two daughters who are being you know raised by you and then by a husband who is still a practicing mormon how does that how does all of that work fortunately uh my husband um is uh as opposed to me who was raised in a kind of fundamentalist sort of um you know home he was not and his you know so he has always had uh much more flexibility than i ever had uh and two he was not it's he was not an active mormon growing up at all oh okay in fact it was i who brought him back when we started dating which is one of my life's great ironies but um (laughs) so was he was more like uh, pardon this phrase, but like culturally Mormon, yes, but not totally. a practice. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I mean, he grew up in Utah, right? So you're, right. you're just like, there's Mormonism everywhere. Right. Um, but he, um, so he's always had more flexibility than I had at the okay. time. I've learned, you know, over time to, to have the kind of flexibility that he just sort of innately had, God bless him. Right. Um, so, um, so he, you know, as I have gone on my journey, he has agreed with a lot of the things that I've 
sort of said, hey, that's not okay, like those interviews and, you know, some of those practices. So we we have a very um, strict policy that our kids don't do those interviews um, ever. Uh, And, um, you know, I've spoken with um, leaders, like his leaders and are, you know, in the in the local congregations or areas and have mm-hmm. offered my critiques and have said, you guys should stop doing this and here's why. And, you know, some of them have taken it to heart and said, yeah, actually that's a good point. And, you know, um, changed their own practices as a result. So that's good to know. Yeah. Um, uh, and then, you know, the girls um, will participate kind of in both religious contexts. Um, right. Yeah, that's a, that has to feel, well, I would think that feels really good, right? To be able to kind of have, at least family-wise, like have a foot in each of those, um, you know, faith traditions. Mm -hmm. Has it, I mean, from your perspective, how, how has it been for your girls? I mean, They've watched, I mean, you said you were pregnant with your first child when this C.S. Lewis night happened. Um, and that was, what, like 14 years ago now? 15? Yeah. yeah, something like that. I think it was 2005, maybe. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, so, I mean, what? how has it been for them? I mean, and what have your conversations been, I guess, like with them? around all of this and as you went to seminary and just all of those things like what has the journey been like I guess in that way they have shared you know especially my older daughter who's a teenager um at this point has shared so you know some feelings of confusion sometimes like what you know mom what's the and it was 2006 I'm just remembering <laughs> anyway you know what what's go you know what why have you changed your mind or why are you, you know, why, why are you different? And we've had, and we've talked about that. We've had to talk about that. And both my husband and I have had to give her sort of, um, you know, space to kind of think about what she believes. And we've had lots of conversations about, you know, what are the differences in the traditions? Does God even exist? What does it mean? Um, you know what I mean? Uh, and, and, right. I think we're, we're both pretty open um, to having those conversations with her and neither of us feels the need to sort of force her to take a, take a side or, you know, come to any particular conclusion, except that we hope that we model grace and love and faithfulness. Um, And then the younger one, the younger one is seven. um, So those conversations haven't been as, you know, uh, haven't been as difficult because it's what she's known growing up. Right. So it's like, yeah, there's mom's church and there's dad's church. And sometimes they go to mom's church and sometimes they go to dad's church. And that feels more normal for her because that's how she's been raised as opposed to sort of the older one where it was, she can remember the transformation taking place and seeing it and wondering, you know, what that meant for her and what that meant for our family. I forgot that the age difference was. Yeah, it's big. There's seven years between yeah. them, so there's right. there's a there's a difference in in kind of where they've been cognitively throughout all this. And right, you know, you'd prefer <laughs> <not> <laughs> to have that kind of disruption, but at the same time, 
I think, I don't know, I look back at my own mother who had a who had some mental health issues when I was growing up and then later got help and has done a ton of healing and feeling a lot better. And, you know, at the same time, my ability to see her transformation was really big in like allowing me to go to therapy and change. And so on the one hand, you're like, man, I wish we could have had this all figured out before we had kids. But on the other hand, if your kids can see you grow and change, but still, you know, be a loving family. Right. Uh, I think that's, you know, that hopefully will have its benefits too for them. Oh yeah. I absolutely think so. I mean, I, I, yes. I mean, I think what, I think what, what y'all are modeling for both of your girls is, I mean, I think the idea of being able to look at the world and say, these are the things that are life-giving. These are the places where it isn't. Here's how I'm going to find myself somewhere in the middle and like claim that, you know, I mean, I think what a wonderful witness and model of like what it means to just be a whole healthy person and that that's a thing that takes work. So yes, (laughs) absolutely. I agree with you. Um, how has this, um, shifting a little bit away from, from the book itself, but just, I mean, how, how has this year been? Uh, we're, we're like right there, right. At about a year, um, ago, the world shut down and Mm -hmm. everything changed. Y'all have moved, um, in that, in the midst of that, right. Or did you, yeah, we moved over the summer. Um, yep. Yeah. So what, uh, what are the, how's it been? Yeah. What is the, what are the takeaways for you? A year of pandemic. You know, on the one hand, like I'm so aware of how lucky I am and how lucky we are. We both have work that we can do remotely. You know, we haven't suffered financially. You know, we 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 did move out of the city so that we could be a little bit you know, closer to some trails and some open spaces and stuff like that. We're both from relatively small towns. And, and when we were spending so much time at home, I was like, all right, we got, we need to be able to get out (laughs) into the world a bit more. Um, you know, so, so acknowledging that I, we haven't been sick, you know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. we are lucky. We are really lucky with our situation. And yet it's hard, you know, it's tiring. It's exhausting to do everything on zoom or not to see people or not to go somewhere. Just, I just miss like breathing in a room and not worrying about it. Right. You know what I mean? Like just breathing. (laughs) Yes. You don't think about it. Well, you didn't think about it. And now it's like all you think it's like, I I find myself, I'm in the grocery store and someone comes closer than even though I'm masked, you know, I'll just hold my breath a little so that I don't, I don't know what that, that probably does nothing, but it just instinctively, you know, I'm just hyper aware of where people are. And uh, I look forward, I think it's turning. (laughs) So I look forward to, to not having to worry about those kinds of things and to seeing people and hugging people and, you know, doing all that human stuff. Yes. Absolutely. Well, this has been a privilege to get to just hear from you and talk with you. Thank you so much. Um, Thank you for having me. Yeah. 
So once again, your book is Sealed, An Unexpected Journey into the Heart of Grace. It is available April 6th on all of the book buying platforms online. And uh, I think the takeaway, at least from this conversation for me, is that phrase that you used, God leads us slowly. I think that's beautiful. Yeah. Thank you so much for being with me. And uh, we'll have to have you back to talk about uh, Mormon metaphysical (laughs) existence. That would be, that'd be a blast for your people. They should go some like hard liquor to stand by and (laughs) enjoy a wild journey. Well, thank you so much. It's great to have you. Thanks, Amelia. Well, that wraps up this episode of Share the Love Stories podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it, and I hope you join me as we continue to journey together, as we tell our stories and share our stories of love, because love is the foundation of all that we do. Until you join me again, I hope you take care, and I hope you keep sharing the love. I'm the Reverend Amelia Arthur. Thanks for being with us on Share the Love Stories podcast, recorded at home in St. Paul, Minnesota.